Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. This week we're opening the dossier on that most mysterious of things. What do our Prime Ministers actually do when they retire? According to Giles Edwards, the author of new book The X-Men, quite a lot. From joining elite groups to indulging in a spot of charity work, there's more to the afterlives of our most prominent politicians than first meets the eye. Here to talk a bit more about it is Giles himself. Welcome. Welcome to the Virtual Bite Back podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Well, thank you for coming. We're here to talk about your book, The X-Men, which is coming out very shortly, um, which is a look at the, uh, I don't want to say afterlives, but the afterlives of um, very prominent politicians, presidents, um, basically the world's power players. Uh, so before we get stuck into that, I wanted to ask you a bit about yourself and how you came to be a journalist and then what made you want to write The X-Men? Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. And um, I think you're right about the afterlife. I'm sure we'll come on to that. It's a difficult question about what to call it. Um, fortunately, I'm not in my afterlife yet. I, I still, <laughs> for the time being, have a job and a career. And I came into it because fundamentally, I've always been really interested in news. And I've always been really interested in politics. And there's a bit at the BBC called the Political Research Unit. And it's a bit which helps give political advice and data and information to all the journalists all around the BBC. And I thought, what a wonderful place to work that would be. That would be the perfect bringing together of my two interests. And so I applied for it and I went there and I've been at the BBC ever since, um, where I now make documentaries for Radio 4, for World Service and for Radio 3 on a variety of subjects, not all of them political. So it's really nice to have the chance to do something outside of that, which is political, but in the slightly sideways way. Absolutely. What made you particularly interested in the, the X-Men, as it were? Did you kind of do a documentary on them or was it just something that naturally caught your interest and you wanted to find out a bit more about? So I've always been interested in what happens when the cameras stop rolling, the tape recorders turned off, when the media's gaze moves away, what happens when people retire. And I was at university in America um, uh, quite a long time ago now and former president Jerry Ford came to the university and um, I was lucky enough to have David Gergen who was one of his advisors who went on to advise President Reagan and President Clinton as my one of my professors and David Gergen kind of brought Jerry Ford to the university and it was in the middle of the Clinton impeachment saga and Jerry Ford wrote an op-ed in the New York Times with his erstwhile um, opponent and later friend President Jimmy Carter kind of talking about how the country should deal with this impeachment saga. And in the end, their um, suggestions were not taken up, as lots of people who write op-eds in the New York Times suggestions aren't taken up. What it did do is it really um, changed the national conversation over Christmas. It was published just before Christmas. And I was it, it made me, I guess, aware in a way I hadn't thought of before that, of the power and possibilities of people with this status to change the national conversation. And so over the years, I've remained interested in what else they might be doing after they've left office. What are they up to? So before we dive any further in, can we just quickly clarify uh, what is an X-Man? And uh, also, how did you come up with the name? I mean, is it related to the, to the film series, to the comic books? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I mean, it kind of is. It kind of is because one of the things that interests me about the X Men, as I call them, and the X Men are former presidents and former prime ministers. And first of all, that's a terrible mouthful to write that down every time you say this group of people I'm writing about. 
but but also there's something about the X-Men as a group in the kind of comic books, which is they are a group and they work well together. And there's relatively few of the people I'm writing about, and perhaps I'll come on to talk about some of them. I mentioned one of them, Jimmy Carter, uh, who can or have really done much on their own, mostly when they're effective in delivering change. And again, we can talk a bit about what kind of change that might be. Um, when they're effective in delivering change, it's because they're working together as a group. And I guess the final reason I like that is, you know, if you've watched the movies or read any of the comics, they are kind of a slightly secret like third power. And I think the way we think the world is run is by governments and possibly companies. Mm. And possibly if you're conspiratorially minded, like is there some other group of sort of power brokers um, it's been a long term kind of trope over the years and it seems to me that they kind of a little bit are I don't want to get conspiracy theorist about it because I'm not really that isn't really my take on it but um, I want to just nod to that so I thought it was a great way of encapsulating that yeah absolutely uh, so let's talk about the lifespan of an X-Man, as it were. Um, so these people, they go into politics uh, most often. They get to the highest you know, office in the land. And then eventually the time comes them to retire. So generally, where do they go after that? What kind of things do they do when leaving office? Do they kind of get stuck into things right away? These groups that you mentioned, like, how do they get involved with those? Yeah, so the, I mean, in a way, that's kind of the core of the book is what it is that they do. But before I get to that, I'd like to just rewind one little other bit, which is that to say that you're absolutely right. You know, these men and women go into power, go into politics, usually to get to the top and to do things. And they do that through a combination of the kind of skills and expertise that they've got. Right. So they're really clever or they're really good speakers or they're really ambitious or they're really healthy or they're really lucky uh, or they're really policy oriented or they're just amazing one-on-one people skills uh, they've got really good memories like all of these things most people who get to the top of politics in democratic societies have a combination of this and that that stuff doesn't leave them the day after they've left office like they're not like this sort of Superman type political character one day and then the next day they're just like regular Joe. Uh, So one of my questions was, well, what are they doing with all that stuff? So to answer your question, they do a lot of different things. There's a kind of base level, which they more or less all do. They more or less all do give some speeches. They more or less all think about joining a few doing a little bit of business advisory work. Not all of them, it's important to say. They more or less all um, write a book, or at least think about writing a book. Uh, Not all of them will get a book deal, but many of them do. Um, And one of them, uh, Kim Campbell, former Canadian Prime Minister, told me how important that was to... Because it was the first time in her career she'd had a chance to sit back and look at her career and see what the continuities were. And it helped not only, obviously, in... I guess, paying the bills for a little while, but in mapping out a future course of what she wanted to do next because she was able to look back and see the consistent strands. Um, but the book really is about what the other things they do and, and it's kind of structured in a relatively simple way around various of these activities. So there's a chapter about campaigning 
um, public campaigning for public policy change usually or maybe just to change the mindset of the public there's a couple examples in the book of where groups of x-men have very effectively done that Mm. many of them can join a club Uh, there's a number of these clubs the club of madrid most people join Um, but there's other clubs as well Uh, sometimes this is less usual they specialize in one area something they really feel really passionately about they want to kind of do some good work on so in the book i talk about paul martin the for another canadian former canadian prime minister with his focus really heavily on um indigenous education in canada some of them go off and run international organizations some of them quite a lot of them actually get involved in diplomatic work some of them fulfill a kind of moral role in their societies uh, where they perhaps speak up about less savoury behaviour of a a successor government or uh, that kind of thing. Um, And then there are the few who just are, can do sort of all of that. And really Mm. there's only a few of those. Bill Clinton was one, is one. Nelson Mandela is one. Tony Blair is one. And I think Jimmy Carter is one. And Obama, I suspect, if he chooses to be one, could do that as well. Yeah, I find that really interesting because I think the most that we hear in the news about people like the X-Men are generally quite cynical and, you know, focusing on these speeches that are very well paid. These men are doing, you know, practically 50 minutes, £150,000. But obviously, that's definitely, that's not all they do. It's just the most publicised part of their, their political afterlife, as it were. So can you talk a little bit about the um, initiatives that these people set up like I know that Jimmy Carter is someone that you talk about a lot especially at the start of the book because of all the good that he did after leaving office so what kind of um, charity work do they do and I know it's like it's very broad but just kind of overview of that yeah absolutely poor old Jimmy Carter people always say about him he's been a better president ex-president than he was president and he really hates that apparently (laughs) he really hates that because he thinks he was a pretty good president I think Listeners can make their own decision as to what they think about that. Um, yeah, I mean, p- partly your your observation at the beginning of that question that uh, they all just kind of run off and sell out is part of my motivation for writing the book, really, because I I thought is that is that a is that true and b is that all there is to it? And so the book, in a way, is a kind of rejoinder to those people who say that. And people have written books about that. There's a really interesting book. Uh, called Blairing by a, f- a few oh. British journalists about Tony Blair's <laughs> kind of yeah and you know and and it's really important these those are really important questions to ask and I don't want to say they're not important because I think they are it's just that I don't think that's all there is to say about these men and women um, so and they do do lots of things and again readers hopefully and listeners can make their own decisions and their own judgment about whether they're worthwhile things to be involved with or whether they are good or bad things. But I think in Jimmy Carter, and certainly in Jimmy Carter's case, that there's really, really mixed views about the range of his work. So he's not always been popular amongst his successors as US president for some of the diplomatic work he's done. He's talked to some pretty unpleasant um, dictators around the world, cuttings across US official policy at times. But in the work he's done at the Carter Center based in Atlanta, Georgia, that he's kind of home, not quite his hometown, but where he, the nearest major city to where he's based. Um, I think very few people would look at that and not say that's done an amazing amount of good. And 
the thing that he's mostly done is his work on neglected tropical diseases and he's put an enormous amount of effort and energy and through his contacts um, fell, uh, directed enormous amount of money um, and sort of technical um, expertise into uh, dealing with problems which to be perfectly honest with you are kind of overlooked and perhaps the most clear-cut example of his success is um, which I write about in the book is over guinea worm disease this is a horrible disease when Carter had left office he left office in January 1981 and a couple of years sort of figuring out what he was going to do and then set up the Carter Centre and pretty soon he alighted on this as a problem that oh, maybe we could do something about this it's essentially a horrible disease you you it's waterborne it comes in you to so drink infected water it grows a horrible like a worm a guinea worm and it basically makes its way out through the skin over the course of several months apparently it's absolutely agonizing um it's i mean debilitatingly so and um you know and it was endemic in lots and lots of countries um and now it isn't now there's i think last year there were 40 something like 20 cases in the world down oh, from wow. 20 million cases in the world when he took over and so really largely because of his initiative obviously working with tons of other people but i think if we ask ourselves the question would this have happened without jimmy carter but it might have done but it hadn't and it perhaps wouldn't have and that's just an extraordinary achievement there's no getting away from that very few mm. people in their lives can say they've achieved something as remarkable as that so what's interesting is that all the work that Jimmy Carter's done, he probably couldn't have done while he was president. Uh, and so I was wondering, do these X-Men uh, feel that they can do more out of office than in office, as it were? No, they don't. I mean, I think to a man and woman, they all felt that that was a time when they were at the peak of their powers and their ability to effect change, um, you know, I think it was Paul Martin said to me, you know, you can achieve more in one day as a prime minister than you can in a month afterwards. You're just your power and ability to affect change is just enormous compared to what you can do afterwards. Um, and I think to varying degrees, they still kind of lament that. I start the book with this question, which my wife asked me one morning before as we were getting ready for work, which was in the middle of the coronavirus crisis with Brexit the negotiations over Brexit looming, all of this difficulty for the Prime Minister, do you think his predecessors would have wanted to be doing the job now? And I think in perhaps Gordon, the way in which, if you've seen any interviews of Gordon Brown or heard any interviews of Gordon Brown over the last few months or with Tony Blair, you look at them kind of like trying not to be too critical, but also kind of, why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he doing that? Why isn't he doing the other? I think the answer is, they probably wouldn't mind. I mean, I can't see inside their minds, but they, they give the impression they quite like to give it a go. And I think that's because they know they can achieve. You can just do so much when you're mm. running a country compared to anything else afterwards. There's quite a good uh, anecdote from your book about John Major suddenly realising that he was no longer prime minister when I think maybe an aide said to Tony Blair, prime minister, shall I put Mr Major on the phone? So it must be a tremendous shock for these people to suddenly lose all that power do you think that the work that they do is just a kind of way of for them to kind of regain something and feel that like they have an impact on the world still i think it's 
really complicated. I think it's different for every person. And I think inevitably, as with all of us, with all things, there's a complete mix of motivations. <clears throat> I think some of these people really miss it. They can never really reconcile it themselves to the loss of power. I mean, you think about that famous line by Charles Pohl, Margaret Thatcher's um, Foreign Affairs Private Secretary, who said she never really enjoyed a day in her life afterward, after leaving office. She didn't have a purpose. Um, I mean, I would say relatively of the few of the people I've met, I didn't get that sense from them. But clearly from some, you get that hankering to be in the game. Others are more reconciled to it. Um, but clearly that you know, in varying degrees, they're still ambitious to do things with their lives. I mean, I, I, I would caveat that by saying that the people I've reached out to and been most interested in speaking to are those who have gone on to do things rather than those who've hit the hit the golf links, mm. as it were. Um, so I've I've taken more interest in because I don't think readers are probably all that interested in reading about <laughs> day, day, infinite days of golf. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they do want to achieve things. Is that sometimes things they felt they could have done or should have done more of in power? Definitely. Is that sometimes things they wanted to continue that they started in power and they want to carry on with afterwards? Definitely. Is it sometimes kind of complete, something completely new they hadn't thought of? It wasn't an issue. Absolutely. Do they, almost all of them, enjoy not having to answer to me in my day job, the media, Absolutely. Um, so there's definitely, a, you know, it's a different, it's not always a different pace of life, but there's definitely a different um, kind of tone and context in which these lives are led. Uh, yeah, it does sound like it. And of course, one of the ways in which they can try and affect changes by banding together. Uh, so you mentioned clubs a little bit earlier. Uh, I just wanted to dive into that in a bit more detail because I know that you spent yeah. quite a lot of time looking at different clubs and finding out what they did and how they work. So can you talk to me a little bit about these kind of societies like the Global Leadership Foundation? Like, How do you get invited to these and you know, what do they discuss in these, in these societies? We have to ask, basically. And then in, in the case of the Global Leadership Foundation, they said no for about eight years. One of the advantages that this book your poor colleagues at uh, Bite Back who had to wait for this book to be delivered for such a long time. I'd like to think one of the few benefits of that wait is that I did eventually get invited in and I'm really you know, grateful for that. Um, I mean, they exist for... A, there's, there's three main... four main clubs and um, so there's the Global Leadership Foundation which you just mentioned, there's the Elders, there's the Club of Madrid and there's the Interaction Council. There are others but those are the biggest ones. The Club of Madrid is the biggest, it's got you know, lots and lots and lots of members. Um, the Interaction Council grew out of a group of friends really and it has, has more that sense about it, it has more that feel about it which isn't to say they're not meeting to talk about serious and important stuff. When I was there they definitely talked about a ton of important stuff. One of the things they talked about was about how to, after uh, the Ebola pandemic, how to prepare for the next pandemic. And I've got to say, if you look back at the recommendations from that summit from five years ago, it would have behoved all of the leaders to have listened to those former leaders and the advice they were giving. I mean, it wasn't that different, I think, from what global public health experts were saying, but they were trying to do what they could to give a, to give a um, profile to those recommendations. For me, the two most interesting are the Global Leadership Foundation and the Elders. 
because they both seem to have a really clear idea about precisely how they fit into the kind of ecosystem, if you will, of other organisations, civil society and government. And it's this. For the Global Leadership Foundation, they are kind of a club consultancy, I would describe them as. And what I mean by that is that they, they're a relatively small group of former uh, presidents and prime ministers, X-Men, and some other people as well, so former ministers from Africa and Latin America and so on, some US politicians, um, the occasional foreign minister. And essentially, they, they're brought together by F.W. de Klerk, the former South African president, who identified essentially a gap in the market for emerging democracies. And the way I described it to people when they've asked friends who've been asking during the writing of this book is like this, is that the president of somewhere who's just elected and has got a problem with water policy thinks, who do I ask? Who do I ask how to do about that? What to do about this? Maybe they don't feel like getting honest uh, or helpful feedback from their civil service. Maybe they're just in a right pickle. Maybe they just like some benefit of someone who's sort of been there, done that. And they ring up FW and say, F- FW, I've got a problem with water. What can you do? And FW kind of goes through his little Rolodex and he goes, ah, here's former Prime Minister Lawrence Gonzi of Malta. He did something like that. Let's send him. So he rings up Lawrence Gonzi. Lawrence, do you fancy going to this country? And off they go. And it's all quiet. They don't tell anybody. The key thing about that organisation and I think probably why they were reluctant to let me come for a while was that they don't talk about their work. It's a kind of a curious position to be in, which is they want people to know, they want current leaders to know what they do, that they exist, that this service is available. But part of their modus operandi and how they think they're successful is that, is that if a president or prime minister invites them in, they know they're not going to read about it in the papers. Lawrence Gonzi, if it is him is not going to tell anyone. The only people who know, actually, are the kind of head of the secretariat, uh, the programme director, the person themselves, and the other members of the Global Leadership Foundation. Uh, they don't tell anybody. And even at the meeting, the national, the, the, the annual meeting which I went to, uh, they don't reveal the, de- the details of the programmes they're doing. And it's just so that they have the, the, the presidents and prime ministers who they support have absolute confidence that this stuff isn't going to leak. So they can be completely honest. And here's the dilemma about writing about something like that. I think that's really interesting. I can see how, and you probably see, and I'm sure the listeners can imagine, how that could be helpful. But we don't know whether it actually is. There's no way of knowing. Um, And so you just have to say, is this on balance perhaps a useful thing to exist in the world? Might it fail most times and perhaps one in every 10 times work? Maybe, but if it works that one time, if it works that one time and a national leader on a major policy issue kind of does the right thing rather than the wrong thing or a better thing rather than a slightly less good thing, could that really dramatically, you know, bend the curve of history in that country? It definitely could. Yeah, it's a strange that they, well, it makes sense now you explain it, but that they keep it so quiet, especially for, I imagine, a group of people with uh, famously quite large egos (laughs) knocking around. For sure. And, you know, what what to me in kind of intrigued me about that, I think that organisation absolutely has the kind of feel and the sensibility of de Klerk. He's a quite a private man, all the rest of it. He doesn't like the limelight all that much. He's never been a particular fan, I think, of the media, not in a bad way, just he, he's had a kicking over the years, like a lot of people have, and doesn't perhaps 
f fancy another one. Um, but the, the other organisation which I mentioned, which interests me, the Elders, also run by a former South African president, uh, founded by Nelson Mandela, also headquartered in London, about half a mile away. Um, you know, those two presidents served in the government of national unity for a couple of years. It's, it is peculiar. Um, but that organisation also has a really clear idea about what its remit is. And that is to figure out where they can make, they have a series of policy areas in which they're interested. And their role is to figure out where they can apply themselves to make a difference. And the reason I think that's interesting is I think on their website, there's a quite detailed theory of change. Like they have w sat down and thought in some detail about, okay, not just could we speak out on every issue, but let's choose some issues. And then within those issues, think about how we, not somebody else, not an NGO, not a company, how we, former presidents and prime ministers, what it is that we uniquely have that we can bring to this and how can we apply that to affect the kind of change we want to see. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I think lots of organisations probably have that a bit uh, but uh, I think they're unusual in this world in understanding what it is that they can do and how influence works. Yeah absolutely and then following on from that something else that I think you you did an interview with one ex-man that he said something that I found very interesting was that he felt like the um almost that the influence of X-Men now is being diluted by the rise of these kind of, by celebrities like Greta Thunberg, um, who hadn't actually held office before becoming famous and yet were also affecting change on the world. So do you think kind of like the brand of the X-Man is changing? Do you think that the future has a place for these people? So I think that's, I mean, I, I agree. It is a really interesting observation. But I think in answer to your question, I don't. I don't think it will reduce it. What I think it'll do is clarify it. So I think there was a point, and the person who mentioned that was somebody who worked with the elders in the early days when you know, Mandela was involved and Jimmy Carter was involved and Desmond Tutu was involved, like really super high profile, famous people, famous outside of politics. And her observation was that there aren't many politicians who now have that there aren't many politicians coming through who are now famous outside of politics to the extent that Malala is or the extent that Greta Thunberg is or the extent that some pop stars are, uh, social media stars, the Kardashians, for example. Um, perhaps the only two at the moment might be Obama and when he eventually leaves the White House, Trump. I think in different, very different ways, they both would be, as X-Men, powerful, independent of politics. Uh, uh, but I think the reason I say that that, that process will clarify what X-Men can do is that I think um, they've been most powerful. The examples in the book, one is about uh, drug policy in Latin America and the other is about a global campaign around uh, child marriage. And I think both of those examples, they were powerful there when they spoke out and changed the narrative both in the public sphere, but also in elite circles. So amongst funders, amongst governments, amongst NGOs, amongst businesses, uh, there's a, they talk about the convening power of these people to the power to bring people together and not quite knock heads together, but sort of persuade them. 
four or five X-Men, a group like the Elders bringing in people, the business leader. It's pretty hard when you've got Mandela and Carter and Tutu sitting around the table. And Mary Robinson, who's now the chair of the Elders, a former you know, pre- Irish president and um, UN human rights um, head, you know, it's really difficult to, when you've got those people sitting around the table asking actually a pretty reasonable request for you to just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so that's, I think, where their power lies, their power to persuade, their power to highlight, the power to amplify, the power to bring together and the power. And this is something the elders talk about. Again, they're very clear about this in their theory of change is their power to kind of uh, give um, kind of almost like cover to local activists inside a country. So say you've got a country where there's a campaign about some issue. Uh, it's very easy for them to go and see the president and persuade the president this that, or the other and the president may or may not listen. But if, the, if once they leave, the president then cracks down on this group. But if the elders go and visit that group as well and raise them up and say, well, we're visiting the president, we're also visiting this group. The, that group has then been given a little bit of a kind of halo effect and they're really clear that's one of the things they're about. Yeah, that, that sounds really, um, really useful. Uh, so how do you think that, or do you think that Donald Trump will change the way that X and the perceived, or do you think that he will kind of just go his own way and not get involved in those circles at all? I mean, I don't know. And who knows whether we'll be talking about Donald Trump as an X-Man in January 2021 or January 2025. You know, as we record this, we don't know. Um, one of the things, though, I will say about Trump as an X-Man when the time comes is one of my arguments in this book is that the generation of X-Men we've got at the moment, the men and women who've run countries, are the generation which created the world in which we live. They're the generation who are power a few in the 70s, like Carter, or 80s. Um, but most of the generation who are in power in the 90s and the noughties and the whatever the last decade was, the teens, um, they created that world. And that was a world of liberal, democratic, globalised world, th- those values. And not just in the clubs, but definitely in the clubs. Those are the values which underlie a lot of the, the work that these X-Men do, a lot of it. If you read their mission statements, it all, I mean, it sounds a bit kind of soggy and like the sort of awful mission statements always do, but it's not, but, but it, it does mean something, that language. And we're coming to understand um, what that language means and the importance of some of that language now in the last few years um, with the resurgence of nationalism in some parts of the world. Um, and I think that Trump doesn't easily fit into that, not to say that he's, you know, does, isn't a Democrat or doesn't believe in liberalism, but I think that he's not in his political career thus far shown a particular support for international organisations, I think it's fair to say, um, or for the type of liberal democracy that these organisations espouse. So I think he'd find it tough, actually, to find a place inside these organisations. And I don't think he'd feel comfortable there. And that's why I think he would be. Uh, I think he. I think he'd be. Certainly, he's not. He wouldn't be unique as an X Man in feeling that way. But I certainly think he. He. He would be un, relatively unusual. So, drawing to the conversation uh, round to a close in that case, what's one thing you hope that people will take away from reading your book? But these people are still out there doing interesting stuff, and it's worth thinking about what they do. 
Um, I think if you're interested like me in politics, there's a whole series of reasons why you might be interested in politics. Um, I'm, I've always been interested for a variety of reasons myself. But one of them is I'm interested in how the world works. Like I want to know what's going on around me, who's pulling levers and what happens when they pull that lever? Is it just a lever? <laughs> is it connected to something which makes something else happen? Um, one of the reasons I've always loved American politics is there's more levers, more people and more power. So it's really interesting to see what happens. And I think if we are interested in the role of NGOs, if we're interested in business uh, and the role of corporate power, if we're interested in the role of governments and international power, we ought to be interested in these people because they are like a sort of oil working between all of those cogs. They do all of these things. They run international organisations. We've got a first X-man running the UN at the moment. We've had, we actually don't have an X-man running the EU at the moment. It's the first time in 25 years we haven't got an X-man running the EU and there are tons of them in the EU. We've got an X-man running the African Union. There's an X-man running NATO. There's X-men uh, inside the UN. There's an X-man uh, is the current human rights commissioner, a former Chilean president, Michel Bachelet. So there's tons of them in international institutions. Uh, there's tons of them in businesses. There's tons of them in NGOs. There's tons of them doing their own thing. It, it's worth keeping an eye on what it is that they're doing. Yeah, and uh, people who want to know more can find out exactly what it is they do in your new book. Uh, the X-Men is out on the 15th of October, so everyone please do head over to Biteback Publishing or Amazon and um, give, it a, give it a pre-order. Uh, Giles, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Vicky. It's lovely to speak to you. Appreciate your okay. time. Thanks for listening to another Biteback podcast. If what Giles had to say piqued your interest in the political afterlives of the world's leaders, then The X-Men is out on the 15th of October and is available to pre-order from the Bikeback website. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time!